Amen. What a great way to start out October, right? Fantastic. Thank you, worship team. Grateful for that. Michael's gone today, uh, a weekend away for vacation, and we're really grateful to have the team step in and Derek to lead us this morning. I'm going to encourage you to take your Bible out if you have it with you, maybe a hard copy or maybe you have it electronically, and turn to um, the book of Luke, if you would, and we'll get to that in just a minute. A couple of things to remind you of. Uh, today at uh, 4 o'clock this afternoon is the annual business meeting for the church. So if you want to be part of that, we're going to be meeting in the quad. We'll be going over financial numbers, uh, the budget for the church for the upcoming year. And it's always a rousing time with about 15 people that show up, right? <laughs> yeah. And so uh, if, you, if you're interested, again, that's 4 o'clock. And then one other detail, um, the thing that Kristen mentioned in the announcements this morning regarding the blessing bags, uh, those are in the atrium, and you can pick one up. I know quite a few of them were taken after the 9 o'clock service, but I would encourage you, that's, that's a way to help children who are going into foster care be prepared. And you heard the announcement from Kristen, I just want to encourage you to not forget that. Those empty bags are back there, and you can pick up some supplies. So if you're where I'm at, you're in the book of Luke, and uh, Luke 16, and we're going to be picking up a parable where we left off at last week, a different parable, but it feeds right into that one. On the heels of what we looked at last week, this particular parable provides me with a, a really fervent desire for you. The desire is that you would take your resources, your talents, your relationships, and that you would really use those, leverage those things for the sake of the gospel. There's so many people in your world that you're going to see this morning who are affected by the reality of this parable, and they don't even know that they're affected by it. And I, I know they're within your social circle. We're going to look at some pretty intense things as we relate these issues of heaven and hell. And Jesus gives a lot of details about hell. It's my high privilege and my awesome responsibility to walk through passages of Scripture with you each week, week after week. The way that we do it here at New Hope is called expository teaching. If you go to Bible colleges, what they would label this as, as exegetical teaching. And exegetical means you take a passage and you break it apart word for word and walk your way through it. And sometimes it takes a long time. But along the way, what you come across is God's perspective on issues, what His view is on topics that haunt us every week. And along the way, you run into really hard topics. Exhibit A is this morning. There isn't a bigger topic than hell and heaven. And who goes there? Where do you end up at death? What gets you into heaven? What gets you into hell? And there's no skipping over hard topics when you do it exegetically. You hit it head on. So we come into this point where we want to pray that God would put our hearts in the right place. And, and I want to step into prayer right now with you, reminding you that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God is on His throne at this moment right now. If you believe that, say amen. God's on His throne, regardless of all the turmoil in the world around you. Regardless of chaos that you might read about in the headlines, God is on His throne. He's securely on His throne, and He holds all things in the palm of His hands. You may look at COVID and say, what's going on? And you may look at the economy, and you may look at the election, and you may look at politics and say, I don't understand this. But it doesn't mean God is any less on His throne. He's in control of all things. 
even with a president of the United States who happens to be in a hospital recovering from COVID. So God controls all those things. Every member of Washington who might have been exposed, both sides of the party, political Democrats and Republicans. So we want to step into this time of prayer asking that God would prepare our hearts for this word that we're about to look at that is such a somber and such an intense, but yet an encouraging passage. And at the same time, asking because God's on His throne that He would superintend over all these things in our world. Let me pray with you and remind you of what Matthew 10 says. Matthew 10 says, do not fear the things on this planet. Fear Him who can cast your soul into hell. It's an intense way to look at this passage, but let's pray with that in mind. Father, we come to this time where we're preparing our hearts for communion and in advance of that, looking at these very words that Jesus spoke in Luke 16. And we want our hearts aligned with you. And the danger is, Father, that there's so many things that pull us away. We open up our phones and we look at news headlines and we may have had disagreements on the way to church this morning or there's things going on this afternoon that pull our attention away from you. I pray that you would allow us to be focused in this moment, focused on what you want to say to us and how you want us to respond. What actions do you want us to take, Father? We, we do lift up to you those who are struggling with COVID. We lift up to you the president and all those individuals who've been exposed to it and that are recovering. God, that you would be with them and fully strengthen them. And we do ask that you would eradicate this virus from our planet. Remove it, Father, from us. Remove the effects of it. But in the midst of it, God, for whatever reason you allowed it, will you accomplish your purposes? And chief among those, God, I know you're doing this. I know you're pulling hearts towards you. I, I pray that in response to that, that those of us who follow you would use these opportunities to speak into the lives of our friends on such critical issues. So, Father, we give our attention to Luke 16, and we ask that you would bless it and that you would enlighten us and give us insight. And we ask for this in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said... I want you to consider the seriousness with which Jesus presents this material. It's, it's dripping with emotion, with empathy, sympathy, compassion. If it weren't, he wouldn't give us the warning that he's giving us. And the passage you're about to look at is a huge warning. If God didn't care, he wouldn't warn us. But this is pure love. This is pure sympathy. This is pure compassion. And I want you to remind yourself, regardless if you've studied this passage a hundred times, remind yourself, the rich man does not end up in hell because he's rich. The poor man does not end up in heaven because he's poor. If that's your framework of thinking, you need to reorient your framework. We come into a backdrop now with verse 14. I want you to see it on the screen, Luke 16, 14. And Luke gives us a backdrop of what's going on in the setting. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. He's making his way to Jerusalem, and the Pharisees are listening. And it says this from Luke. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. At what? Well, they've, they've just heard the parable that you heard last week about the poor manager of money and the guy who was an unwise manager, and he was misusing his boss's operation. And they're listening to it, and they know that Jesus is talking about them, and they're scoffing at Jesus. And this is the exact same way that they treat Jesus. You'll see them treat him this way on the cross. 
It says that they scoffed at Jesus while he's hanging on the cross and, and said to him, you helped others, why can't you help yourself? Well, it's this word of derision. You'll find a lot of Greek words in your notes this morning. I'm not trying to teach you the Greek language, but I want you to see the meaning behind what's going on here. This particular Greek word that comes up on the screen right now, when it says scoffing, it means they're holding up their nose. It's a physical action in derision. They're looking down their nose at him and sneering at him because they don't believe the things that he's saying. They don't like the way he's approaching it. Revealing to you and I that their hearts are really, really hard. And when your heart's hard, it's hard to hear the truth. And so their hard hearts are keeping them from hearing the truth and seeing themselves in the story. I told you when a good storyteller tells a story, he's always got a character in there that you can find yourself in the story. And they're not seeing themselves in there because they don't like the way that Jesus presents this. And so they're scoffing at him. Well, the remarkable aspect of this particular parable that you're looking at that sets it apart from all the other parables that we've looked at since last year, October, is that Jesus in this story uses first-person names, and he's not done that before, and he doesn't do it with any of the other parables. It sets it apart from all the other parables, and that causes scholars and theologians to look at it and say, this looks like this might be an actual historical event that perhaps he's created this parable out of history. We don't know if that's the case. We, we don't know if that's a circumstance, but it doesn't read like any of the other parables. And here's how it starts in verse 19. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. It's speaking of opulence. It's, it's talking about an extremely wealthy individual with an extremely rich lifestyle. And Jesus is going to contrast it with the misery of a beggar, someone who's on the street literally in front of this guy's home. And we know this about him because of the way that Jesus has introduced it because he's wearing an outer purple garment. And we've got to break this down so we understand what this is describing here. It's purple because of a very costly dye that's harvested in that area. So we've got someone who's got an extravagant and lavish lifestyle. And in the big picture, it makes him a hero in the story to the Pharisees who are listening to the story because they believe that anybody who had that kind of wealth, anybody that had that kind of success was worth admiring. They want to be him. Well, let's start with the way that Jesus described it. He says he's habitually dressing in purple and fine linen. Habitually means it's his normal everyday way of clothing. In other words, he has no casual Friday at the office. He doesn't wear blue jeans to church. This is a guy who wears very fine clothing every single day of his life. His first garment, his outer garment, is extraordinary, but I'll, let me describe ordinary for you first. If, if you had ordinary wealth, your outer robe was made of wool. If you had a little bit more than ordinary wealth, you could hire someone to do what's called the fulling of your wool, F-U-L-L-E-D, fold wool. And that was a process by which they would take the garments and put it in a vat of clay and mix it with the clay in order to take away the bristles of the wool and make it very soft. And in the process, they would polish the wool and shine it, and it would become brilliant white. So you could identify someone who had money because typically when you'd look across a room or in town, you could see someone with a very white robe on, and that's someone who had enough money to hire someone to full the wool and make it brilliant. And you've heard the phrase, brighter than wool or whiter than wool. That's where that phrase actually comes from. 
So whiter than wool, whiter than the average person because of the processing, but if you could afford something super luxurious, you would hire individuals to dye your robe with Tyrian purple. Tyrian meaning Tyre, the city of Tyre, which is on the northwest coast of Israel along the sea of the Mediterranean Sea, and, and it was dyed purple through the process of harvesting shellfish. And you can look it up yourself. You can even look it up in the service if you want to. A shellfish called murex, M-U-R-E-X. It's a beautiful shellfish. And they would harvest that shellfish, and from that they would extract a purple dye. When you read the book of Acts, you see that Lydia was a seller of purple dyes. This is a really extravagant process, very, very expensive. So this purple robe belongs to the elite of society, the one percenters, we might say. And under his robe, he's wearing really fine linen, and fine linen in this context is Egyptian cotton. Even today, we think of Egyptian cotton as being the best. It's the highest thread count. And so he has fine linen underneath. He has fine linen on the outside. It's polished and it's dyed with Tyrian purple. And Jesus says he's joyously living in splendor. This particular Greek word that comes up on the screen for you next, this, this one is talking about euphoria. You, you know the English word euphoria. It's where we get it from, this particular word. And Jesus is using this to describe him, meaning he's in a great frame of mind. He's rejoicing and he's making merry. And euphrain, when it's used this way, is always associated with feasting. So Jesus says he's living in splendor, euphrain daily. In other words, every day is an ox roast for him. Every day is a huge party at his house. He's hosting great feasts, and he's described as living in splendor. Well, that's an adverb for flamboyant. So we've got someone who's living brilliantly with extreme riches, is self-indulged with a really lavish lifestyle, an ostentatious display, and he's got it all. He's the very definition of what it means to be filthy rich. Now, Jesus knows his audience. He knows you. He knows me. He knows his audience then, and he knows the Pharisees really well. And he knows exactly how the Pharisees think because he knows human nature. They hear the description of someone like this, and they immediately look up to him because all they have to hear is he wears purple robes. Are you kidding me? And he lives in splendor? This is someone whom they want to be. So in their mind, in the mind of the Pharisees of the first century, this is a man, this extremely wealthy man is greatly blessed of God. He's someone to be admired, and they're quick to conclude, clearly, he's devout because God only pours out his blessings on those who are worthy of his blessings. That's the rationale. That's the reasoning of the Pharisees at this time. So in the context of the first century audience, the Pharisees believe he's clearly right with God. This is someone who's got it down. So you shouldn't be too quick to conclude living in 2020 that this concept of health and wealth and prosperity, the prosperity gospel originated with our generation. It's been around for a very, very long time. The first century had its own version of a prosperity religion. Their thinking was, if you've got a lot, it's because God really likes you, and therefore He gives you a lot. And the opposite of it, the view of the social world was that if you're really, really poor, it's because you're cursed of God. God doesn't like you. So therefore, if you have nothing, 
It's because God has turned his back on you. Rich people are blessed, they're going to heaven. Poor people are poor and they surely can't expect to go to heaven. So we have a man here whom Jesus has described first who's living life to the max. His clothing is grand, his gates are grand, his mansion is grand, his banquets are grand, and his social circle, it is the upper tier of society. And now Jesus contrasts it in verse 20. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Sounds pretty gross, doesn't it? So in the first century, life is completely different than what you experienced this morning getting ready for church today. Even if you're at home, you went through your ritual, you're watching virtually, you, you understood you went through a process this morning. Maybe your alarm went off and it, automatically your coffee maker started making coffee for you. Or perhaps you were able just to jump in the shower and take a nice hot shower. That's way different than the world that they know. If you're a common person living at this period of time, life is very, very difficult for common people, let alone for the poorest of the poor. There's no system of social security in their world. There's no way to take care of the elderly when they're frail. The government doesn't care for anyone, and so the contrast between lifestyles is completely stark. Uh, in the minds of the Pharisees, this incredibly poor beggar that Jesus has just described is cursed by God, and the evidence of that is his miserable life. But when you read the Old Testament and you find that God commanded the nation to take care of the poor among them and that they would have a, a sabbatical year and a year of jubilee, it was meant to wipe out debts. There was commandment from God by which individuals would be taken care of and the nation wouldn't have poor people within it. They wouldn't face starvation. But they neglected God's commands and so they don't participate in that. So now we have a poor man and Jesus has built him right into the story. And the Pharisees know what their responsibility is before God, but they haven't carried out their responsibility. So he says this poor man has a name, and his name is Lazarus. Let's start with the word poor. Next Greek word in your notes, and you'll see it up on the screen, this word tokos. Not just a beggar. He's cringing. Not just a pauper. According to this definition, this means he's literally living life in stress distressed. Mendicancy means he's got absolutely nothing. It's not that he has little, he has nothing. If we see a homeless person today on the streets and maybe they're pushing a shopping cart or perhaps we think they've got all their world's goods in that shopping cart or maybe they're carrying a plastic bag or perhaps they have cardboard they crawl underneath, this guy doesn't even have cardboard to crawl underneath. He absolutely, according to Scripture, has nothing. And verse 20 goes on to say, he was laid at the gate of the rich man. I want you to see this next Greek word too, and, and the English is pretty weak here, but the word that's used is the word balo. And the mean, it means to actually be thrown down. He wasn't gently laid by his friends at the gate of this person. He's been dumped there. So here's a man who's been dumped at the gate, at the gate and it's very likely that he's paralyzed. The evidence of it is in the story, he can't move, and his needs are profound. 
And whoever's been taking care of him up to this point and helping him has run out of resources apparently, and they're just dumping him at the gate like a stray cat because they can't take care of him anymore. So they haul him to the gate of this really wealthy person, hoping that that guy might do something for him. And as far as society is concerned, he's a no-name, but God knows his name. He has a name, and his name is Lazarus, and Lazarus is sick. Now, don't confuse this Lazarus with the Lazarus that Jesus raises from the dead. You see that in a few more chapters. That's not this Lazarus. They're two different individuals. The Lazarus Jesus raises from the dead. He lives with his sisters. They're a wealthy family, and he's a friend of Jesus. This particular Lazarus is covered with sores, and he's a beggar at a gate. They're two different people. This Lazarus is very sick. The next word that pops up is the word gate, and I hope this imagery is really landing in your mind. This particular word that's used here, pulon, don't picture a picket fence in front of someone's home with a gate in the yard. This is speaking of a gate or portal to a city, typically, and sometimes to a mansion. So they were usually ornate gates in the way that they're described here. So here we have an estate with a palatial entrance, a great portal to a mansion, and no one paints a picture like Jesus. And he paints a picture by saying, there's a man at that gate, and he's longing to be fed with the crumbs falling from the rich man's table. Uh, Jesus paints pictures in an economy of words that I don't have the benefit of because we don't live in the first century. He could say something in a sentence, and they all knew what he was describing, but we don't live in that era, and therefore it takes us a long time to work through these. Thus, we're working on the parables for a year now, and here we find an economy of words. Just start with the phrase, he was longing, a really strong word, and it's speaking of passion and it's speaking of desire but it's linked with passion and desire with this thought, desperation. He's starving to death. So he's so desperate he would take anything. Let's put ourselves in the framework of what's going on. In the first century world, it's not a sanitized world. There's no thought of people wearing masks or using hand sanitizers. There's no hospitals. There's certainly no five-star restaurants. And what we think of of knives and forks, they didn't have. Most people ate with their hands, with their bare fingers. It's a crude world to live in. And, and the staple of humanity is bread. It's been around since the dawn of civilization. And so they use bread at these feasts in a unique way. We stack food on bread. Well, they did to some degree too. They took their bread and they dipped it in their stew. They dipped it in their soups. But there's no napkins in their world. And so bread becomes a napkin because it has the ability to absorb things. And so as they reach for their hands and they grab food and juice begins running down their hand, they, they grab a piece of bread and they begin wiping their arms and their face with it like you would a napkin. Now, unlike anybody else, I like a good steak dinner. Imagine going to your favorite steak restaurant. Let, let's say you go to Capital Prime and you order up a steak dinner. And the waiter comes and puts a steak in front of you, and you reach out, and you just grab it with your fist and begin pounding it in your mouth. Isn't everybody in the restaurant going to look at you? It's like, crude dude, who are you? Well, because we don't do that in our society, but that's what they did then. They picked up things with their fingers, and then they would use bread to clean their hands. 
and wipe their arms off and their face and then take the bread and throw it under the table. Now, I know that's what you wouldn't do at your home. At least I think you wouldn't. But that's what they did. There's a really interesting description going on when Jesus is having a conversation with a woman at the well, Matthew 15, where she's having a theological conversation with Jesus, and Jesus is sharing information, and he stopped short, and, and he said, you know what, um, it's not good to throw the bread to the dogs, and the woman's response is, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table. Well, this is the exact same illustration they're talking about here. The, the dogs that they have at this period of time, they come in and they clean up all the debris. But don't be thinking of the dogs that we have in our world today. Pets as we think of them did not exist. There's no fancy little dogs running around with ribbons in their hair and sweaters on their body, right? There's no Petco. There's no PetSmart. Their dogs roam the streets eating, eating garbage. And when a portal to a mansion would open up where the banquet was just held... They'd race in through the gates because the food is there for them to eat. So follow the flow of what you've heard so far. You've got a very wealthy man who's having a big feast, and his guests have joined him, and they're laughing, and they're eating, and they're sipping their wine, and they take bread, and they begin wiping their arms down and wiping their face and throwing it under the table. The banquet is over. And they leave the host house, and they go out the gate, and stepping either around Lazarus or stepping over Lazarus, they make their way back home. The household staff, they don't close the big portal to the mansion. They leave the gates open so the dogs can come running in, and the dogs begin feasting on the stuff under the table. This is the image that Jesus is presenting here. And he says, Lazarus in that moment would give anything if he could just be under the table with the dogs. This is the image of utter desperation. And this is where it gets a little prickly for you and I living in 2020 with this world of affluence that we have. And if you don't think you have affluence, just compare yourself to people living in Africa or other world nations that are third world. We have abundance beyond the imagination of any of these individuals. Jesus is reminding us in the story, there are people who can easily assist the Lazaruses of this world. But life is comfortable behind the gate. My family is secure. I have no desire to interrupt my extravagant life. And so Jesus is presenting this image of Lazarus only getting attention by laying outside the gate, and the only ones who are paying attention to him are the dogs who are waiting to get in, eat the food. While they do, they come over and lick the ulcers and the wounds that are on him. Meaning this man of great wealth has zero interest in being a steward, or he would use his wealth to help. And he shows no interest in what the Scriptures say. What do the Scriptures say? People living at this time understood the Old Testament. Let me just remind you of a couple verses from Proverbs. Look at this one first. Proverbs 19.17, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. That's encouraging. Know that there's a reward waiting. But what about this one that gets a little harder? Proverbs 21.13, he who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. It's the reason New Hope has a compassionate care fund. 
so that we can help individuals who are struggling either to meet the needs of their bills, can't pay their utilities, perhaps can't put groceries on the table. The Compassionate Care Fund is there for that reason. It's the reason that my wife and I served in a ministry called Youth Haven Ranch. It, it works with the poorest of the poor. It's, it's intended, Youth Haven is intended to reach into the lives of children who are living in circumstances where they can't take care of the situations they're in. Very, very poor individuals. And Scripture goes on to one step further, and this one applies to you and I specifically, 1 John 3.17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John's just asking the question because he's linking it with this reality that actions reveal the heart. Now, what we've talked about up to this point is definitely an aspect of this parable, but it's not the aspect. It's just an aspect that reveals a bigger picture of what's really going on. There's something bigger going on here. Actions reveal what's really going on in the heart. I've said to you for years, if you've been here for any length of time, what you believe about God determines what you do next. It's true. Check it yourself. What you do this afternoon, what you believe about God determines what you do. This is what Jesus is driving at here. So now he really ramps up the story. It goes to verse 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. So Lazarus dies, and is it because of illness? Is it malnutrition? We don't know. And death also comes to the man of great wealth. Catch this, dying is the only thing these two have in common. Up to this point in the story, they're living completely divergent life, but they die. They both die. Death is the great equalizer. I've, I've heard that statement since I was a teenager. We don't know who made the quote. A lot of people think it was Shakespeare. That Shakespeare wrote it based on the understanding of what he put in the play Hamlet. I know most of you are probably not fans of Shakespeare. I'm not necessarily myself. In, in Hamlet, Act 5, Scene 1, there's a moment when Hamlet is walking through a graveyard, and he's with Horatio. And in this very famous scene, Hamlet picks up a skull because it's the Middle Ages, and not everybody's body was buried, and there's a skull on the ground, and he bends over in the cemetery, and he peeks up the skull, and he begins questioning the meaning of life. And he turns to Horatio, and he says, Horatio... To what base uses may we return? Alexander lived. Alexander died. Alexander has been buried, speaking of Alexander the Great. And then he goes on to say, imperious Caesar has died and has returned to clay. Well, if he did indeed come up with that phrase, death is the great equalizer, that's only based on Scripture. Genesis 3.19 says this, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Or Proverbs 20.22, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. So in spite of really great wealth, the rich man dies, and he's buried, and no doubt he's going to have an expensive funeral. In Lazarus, there's no great monuments in his honor. Most people don't even notice that he's gone. But here's a very subtle, internal, intentional switch on Jesus' part. When the story starts, Jesus begins telling us first on earth, 
Abraham's, or, or the, the position of the wealthy man. Now he begins telling us about Lazarus having the first position, and he tells us that Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. It's the first thing he says about death. So look with me on the screen at that phrase, to Abraham's bosom. What does that mean? It's really important next week as we begin working through this in phase two of this. At Abraham's bosom means to be at his side. That, that's the intent behind the description. To be at Abraham's bosom was absolutely the highest goal for anyone living in the Jewish world. It's a reference to the paradise of God, to being in this place of comfort. Nothing could be better than to die and have a first-person position right at the side of Abraham. To be at his bosom meant you were right up next to him, meaning you got first position. So on earth, Lazarus doesn't get anything. Life is not good for him. He doesn't even get much of a funeral. There's no paid mourners. There's no spice for him. There's not even really a very good crypt, as you're going to see next week. They threw dead bodies of beggars in the valleys to rot. But for the wealthy man, he's got a great position. And for these individuals listening to this, you can't get much better than being at Abraham's side. But they don't know that that's where he's at. And life moves on in the mortal world, people going about their business, completely oblivious to what's unfolding in eternity. There comes a point when every one of us will experience this exact same issue, when our physical shell will no longer be able to hold our eternal spirit. Your eternal spirit is alive, it's active, and it's eternal. But your physical shell... It's going to deteriorate to the point where your physical shell can no longer sustain your spirit, and your spirit will depart your physical body. That's when death comes. Death takes place when your spirit leaves the body. It's a physical process and a spiritual process. The Scriptures speak of it. James 2.26 says this, the body without the spirit is dead. Now, here's the encouraging part for believers in Jesus. Death is just the beginning of an entirely new, exciting existence. It's just the beginning. So if you're Christians this morning, I, I want you to say amen to this if you agree with this. For the Christian, death means to be present with the Lord. So the Scriptures say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, instantly in His presence. No sleep state, but instantly in His presence. But for the unbeliever, the Bible is very clear. Death means to be put away from God's presence. And for the unbeliever, they would like to think that's all there is to it. Like, I just love to be put away from God. But especially for the atheist, I, I want nothing to do with him. I don't want to be in his presence. They would love for that to be all that there is. C.S. Lewis records a time when he was walking through a cemetery, just like Hamlet, and he came across a tombstone. And he looked upon the inscription. I, I want you to see the quote of the inscription. You'll see it up on the screen. This is what C.S. Lewis read. Here lies an atheist all dressed up and no place to go. Kind of funny. Process it, right? Think it through. And C.S. Lewis stopped and read the inscription and then said quietly to those who were walking with him, I bet he wishes that were so. I bet he wishes... There's no place to go. But that's not the truth of the Bible. All dressed up and standing before God. 
So here, Jesus is deliberately, you in 2020, giving you an opportunity to take the responsibility to draw a conclusion now based on what you've heard. You've heard this information that he's presented, and you've got to draw a conclusion about each of the men's souls that you've just read about. Where they end up is determined by their relationship to God before death, not after death. We already know where Lazarus ends up because Jesus just said he's carried away on the wings of the angels to Abraham's bosom. But it comes to a moment where you have to think maybe Jesus even paused here. Did he leave the Pharisees hanging, anxious to know what happens to the wealthy man? What about this one of great wealth? Well, the Pharisees have already drawn their conclusion about what they think, where they expect him to go is to eternity in heaven with God. Just hear verse 22, how it ended. The rich man also died and was buried. And look at 23 on the screen. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom, meaning at his side. What? Hades is hell. Hades is the Greek word for hell. How could, how could this man of great wealth get there? So from the point of the Pharisees, this, this is shocking. He's favored by God because to them, wealth is an indication of righteousness. But he's in hell. What's he doing there? Well, next week, you're going to see how he got there and what it's like to be there. But just bear with me as we finish out this portion this morning. This is a stunning turn of events. He lifts up his eyes, meaning he's got constant conscious awareness. And he sees Abraham and Lazarus, the very one that he stepped over at his own gate. Let's just take this phrase. I'm getting ahead of myself, but just look at this. Verse 23, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. The Greek word that's used here, Hades, you see this on the screen, it's in your notes, the place or the state of departed souls. I've already mentioned that he's immediately aware of where he's at. His eyes are open and he can see what's going on. He knows whether or not there's eternal reward or there's eternal punishment. Throughout our culture in 2020, the word hell is on a lot of people's lips. A lot of people freely use the word hell. You find it constantly in the movies, you find it in books, you find it in music. ACDC wrote a pretty famous song about being on a highway to hell. People, people know the phrase. However, for most people in culture, Often, they deny the reality of hell and usually rationalize it away this way. How could a loving God possibly send people to a place like that? That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God I know about. So while you come across people who verbally threaten others with the word hell, like, you go to hell, maybe you've heard that a lot since COVID lockdown, those very same individuals are likely not stopping to consider what that place really is, what that location is, what's in store for anyone who goes there and hear this. This will really come out next week, never to return. Very somber because of this reason. Most people want to believe they're going to heaven at death. 
most, certainly the vast majority, want to be there. But even today, 90% of Americans still say they believe in God. 83% of Americans say they believe in Jesus. What they believe about Jesus, now that's another question. But they say that they believe in Him. These individuals would be among those who think that they're headed for heaven. So typically when they're asked the question, this is how they respond. When you ask the question, do you expect to go to heaven, this is what most people will say. I've heard many people say this to me. Well, I certainly hope so. I've been a really good person. It's generally the response that you get from people in society without them thinking about what the qualifiers really are. The phrase they typically use is, I hope so, and hope in its most basic form is very common to humanity, Christians, non-Christians alike. It's a common element of who we are. We all live with some measure of hope. It's a tool that we use. It's the way that we cope with anxiety, the anxiety that's been produced in our world. When things break apart at the seams and fall apart, eventually people look to the future. And they have a hope for their future, hoping that things will be better. So we set our heart on better things, a better career, a, a, a better place to live, a, a new opportunity, a fresh new beginning, hoping that whatever's ahead of us is better than the thing that we're leaving behind. Hope is innate to who we are because life on this fallen planet is really, really hard. We live in a fallen world. I'm not telling you what you don't know. You know this. It's inhabited by sinful people us included. And so relationships explode. Dreams are not realized. Can't drop that 15 pounds. Viruses invade our world. And we can't stop it because decay is constant because sin dominates the planet. Therefore, death dominates the planet. If not for God's gift of hope, and it really is His gift, if not for God's gift of hope, we would not find our way beyond today's pain. This is what the Bible says. I'm not telling you anything new. This is just a match for Scripture. It says this, Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick, meaning where there's no hope in your life, there's misery, and your heart hurts. So I think we'd have to agree to exist without hope would be excruciating. To exist without hope would make for an excruciating existence. But what if it went a step further? What if you take all the bad that's ever happened, all the pain, all the misery, all the exploded relationships, all the trauma, and boil it down into one, all the bitterness, all the fear, all the anxiety, and experience it to the full, and then remove hope. Remove hope that it's ever going to get any better. That would be hell. Because it never ends. It goes on and on and on. That knowledge would intensify suffering exponentially. We started this morning by saying God is on His throne. He holds everything in the palm of His hands. There's nothing that freaks Him out or surprises Him. COVID, oh, I didn't see that coming. It's not God. He's not surprised. Otherwise, He wouldn't be all-powerful and omniscient and all-in-control, all-knowing. 
So that same God says this to us when it comes to things like viruses or tension around our planet. Look with me on the screen, Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear viruses, don't fear viruses, don't fear job loss, don't fear exploded relationships. Fear the reality of this most crucial of all crucial things. And it's not talking about Satan. It's talking about God. Fear Him who is able to put the soul in hell. This is a warning of reality. And warning people of reality is the kindest, most compassionate, most loving thing that you can do. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He loves the Pharisees, regardless of them sneering at him and scoffing at him. We understand this, that helm is the realm of the dead. And it's where these individuals wait until judgment day. And it gets worse than hell. Because on Judgment Day, hell, we're told, is opened up and emptied out. And all those that are retained there, we'll get into this a lot next week, all those who are retained there stand before God at the great judgment. And at the great judgment, they're cast into what's known as the lake of fire. One day, hell will give up all the souls that are held there, and that lost group of individuals will stand before Christ and will be judged. So Jesus has just given us a picture to end with. He's painted a picture of these two realms. That Hades has two sections at this period. There's the peace section where Abraham is at and Lazarus is sitting at his side. And then there's this torment session where this individual is saying, I'm dying of thirst. Send someone to relieve me. Go ahead and read the rest of the story this week. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. He's describing the two sections. But it's held by scholars that when Jesus died, and Scripture says He descended into the lower parts of the earth, into Hades, that He emptied out the peace section and took all those of the faith with Him into heaven. And that's why the Bible says in Ephesians 4, He led captivity captive. Blow your mind, right? Jesus took all those, Abraham to Lazarus to every other individual, Daniel, Job, Esther, Deborah, and led them into heaven because they couldn't go into heaven until Jesus had died on the cross for their sins. But that's next week. We know today that paradise is heaven. And we know that in heaven, Jesus reigns in glory. Amen? The same Jesus whom you're going to see one day is the same Jesus whom you're going to celebrate now in communion, the one who died for you. You don't have to fear hell this morning. You don't have to fear death. Because Jesus died on the cross for you, he faced that death for you, so you don't have to fear death. No fear of hell this morning if you're a believer in Jesus. Because Jesus died and was resurrected to save you from hell. So the Bible says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from hell so that you can be in heaven. That's a God worth celebrating, isn't it, church? It's a God worth praising for this amazing grace. 
So I, I, before I transition into communion with you, I, I just want to ask God that he would seal this in our hearts. Would you do that with me right now? It is such a critical issue. Father, would you just store this in our mind? Let's pray together that way. Father, we're about to be distracted. We're going to step up to the communion table and pick up these elements, and there's such a strong potential that these things can quickly fade from our mind. I pray, God, that you would seal it so deeply in our hearts that we can't rest until we act on this. We know that what we believe about you determines what we do. Cause us as your people to act on this, to be bold on your behalf, to represent well the reality and the truth of what we've looked at this morning. And at the same time, God, we're filled with gratitude. There's so much thankfulness in our heart. You've given us an amazing grace. We don't even know how to properly describe it. You saved us from the fire of hell and delivered us over into eternity with you. We're just waiting for that day to happen. So in the meantime, we praise you and we thank you. And we lift this cup and this bread in order to demonstrate the reality of that. That we are willing to be your witnesses. God, do that for us in Jesus' name. I pick up 1 Corinthians 11 because that's our tradition here at New Hope. If you're new to church here, communion takes place on the first weekend of the month. And we don't ask people to be members at New Hope, but rather believers in Jesus Christ. That's the criteria. And the criteria is based on what we read in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks very specifically about what you're about to do. If you haven't been here since COVID and lockdown, or maybe you're new to the church, when you come up to the tables, they're in the back and in the front, you're going to find two cups. And the two cups are stacked on top of each other. The bread is in the bottom cup. It's all prepared and sanitized very nicely for you. So pick up the two cups, take it back to your seat, and I'll talk you through the rest. But just hear these words before we step into communion. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Remember, what you're about to do is a witness to the person on your right and on your left. You're saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're about to participate in that way. So because Paul understood, we understand this is for believers. You get this warning that goes with it. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he has to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we leave this time here for you right now, before you come to the table, to examine yourself. Talk to the Father. You've got some things to confess. Deal with it now. It's not between me and you. It's between you and the Father. Do you have some things you want to surrender to Him? Do that now. Before you come to the table, just examine yourself. And when you're ready, pick up the elements, take them back to your seat, and I'll talk you through the rest.